Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And suddenly like this um, round, like just sort of exploded in the sand next to me. Um, And this sort of volley of gunfire like struck uh, all around where I was working. Welcome to Terra Incognita, the adventure podcast. I'll start by saying sorry, as it's been a little while since we've put an episode online. I've actually been working down in Antarctica, um, photographing leopard seals and killer whales and hanging out with penguins on small, smelly islands, which has been amazing. I've never been down there before. Um, And yeah, an amazing, exciting trip. But now I'm back at home in Sheffield, uh, sat in my living room, recording the intro to episode 11 of the Adventure Podcast. Um, we've recorded what I hope are some really brilliant episodes over the last week or so. I had a conversation with polar photographer Martin Hartley, who's a long-term hero of mine, although he'll be devastated that I've said that out loud. And just a few days ago, I recorded an interview with Sophie Darlington, a wildlife filmmaker and camerawoman who has travelled all over the world and is most recently known for her work on the BBC series Dynasties. But before we release those two, we have this wonderful episode with Megan Hine. Now, if you listen to what the newspapers tell you, then Meg is a, in inverted commas, real-life Lara Croft, and the woman who keeps high-profile survivalists alive. If you listen to what Megan tells you, then she's a survival expert and an expedition leader. As is often the case, this was a lot of fun to record. I drove over to North Wales met Megan in her house on the coast and I don't know what it is about outdoorsy types and sitting on the floor but we sat there drinking tea and talked about all sorts of things actually Uh, quite a a varied podcast episode to this one we talked about Meg's career and how she became what she is today Um, we actually talked quite a lot about um, the rise in social media and chronic stress that can come from that Um, the negative sides of social media and authenticity uh, online. And um, we spent a fair bit of time kind of putting the world to rights with all of that sort of stuff. I've tried to avoid it in previous episodes. I I really want to make sure this podcast stays true to its roots and focuses on adventure and exploration and the amazing people that do or that we've been hearing from and the lives that they lead. I think it's important to take a look at the way that we portray ourselves online and the way that these digital versions of ourselves impact the confidence and happiness of others. So uh, stick with that because all the talk of being chased by opium farmers, uh, stalked by apex predators and being shot at during tribal feuds in Kenya happens just after the social media conversation. We also talked a lot about managing fear, which is something of a, it's becoming a recurring theme on the podcast, which I'm, I'm definitely into. It's a huge thing in the outdoors. And obviously, you know, it's not just the way that we perform physically that allows us to move in these environments, but how we react mentally as well. And both Aldo Kane and Megan have spoken really eloquently about managing fear in these places. 
Meg has also written a book uh, called Mind of a Survivor, which she was kind enough to give me a copy of and sign for me to give away. Um, so if you fancy winning a copy of Meg's book, head to Instagram at The Adventure Podcast, where there are details on how you can get your hands on it. Before we start the episode, I want to mention the Kendall Mountain Festival tour. Now, Kendall, in inverted commas, is something of an institution, and I imagine that a large percentage of the audience of this podcast will know exactly what Kendall is. For those that don't, it's one of the biggest and proudest mountain festivals in the world, and I can hand on heart say that, as a young man, it was hugely inspirational for me. I can remember exactly where I sat and exactly what I was watching in the Brewery Arts Centre when I was at university in the Lake District, and feeling overwhelmingly inspired by what I was watching. Um, I've been back almost every year since, first as a passionate member of the audience, and then slowly as I weaseled my way into the industry. And I'm really proud to have hosted my first formal film premiere there. And the amazing relationship with Kendall continues, and I'm really proud to have the podcast associated with Kendall Mountain Festival and the tour. So the tour in itself sounds amazing. I won't go into too much detail, but basically they're taking the Mountain Festival on tour and introducing you to all sorts of different amazing inspiring people all across the country um so quick fire um on the 28th of february they're in birmingham with ultra runner damian hall in brighton on the 15th of march with anna mcnuff who i secretly want to get on the podcast and on the 8th of may they're in oxford with polar explorer and endurance athlete ben saunders So if you're into that sort of thing, which you are because you're listening to this, then head to kendallmountaintour.com and see if you can find yourself some tickets. Right, over to the one and only Megan Hine. Um, I'm Megan Hine. Um, I am a survival consultant and adventure consultant for um, some of the major adventure shows on TV. Uh, I also do a lot of private guiding, so expedition leader as well. Uh, so like I do a real mix of things. It's actually really hard, you know, when you're flying through airports um, to when it says like, you know, what's your job description and like <laughs> it doesn't fit in a box. Um, which I think is what I love so much about what I do. And it's just like, to me, it still blows my mind that I've actually been able to, you know, make a career out of this. So, you know, I, I, my sort of, I suppose now with the sort of TV side of things, uh, starts with, uh, a call with a production company or with an executive producer or even the channel who've got this amazing idea for a show, um, and, you know, I'll talk with them about ideas about what we might be able to do, um, talk about locations as well. Uh, and then once we've kind of locked down some location ideas, um, they'll then deploy me out into country. And then I'll spend, you know, several weeks uh, hunting around, looking for journeys. Um, and for me, that's that's the most exciting bit because, you know, I get to talk to local people. So, you know, what in the morning I could be talking to somebody in a loincloth and in the afternoon you're talking to a member of a royal family somewhere. Um so it's just so diverse. It really keeps me like sort of mentally stimulated as well as like physically as well. Um, and then once we sort of move into the filming, then I take on like a safety role. So I tend to head up crew safety, um, which is then making sure that you know all the crew are safe, uh, any rigging and things that needs doing. Uh, so we work a lot in uh, very technical terrain. So often I'm working one on one with a camera operator and managing the sort of the the camera teams and the the sound um, guys and things uh, and the safety team that works with them. So it's for me, it's like this amazing like sort of game of chess of kind of moving people around and trying to predict what the presenters are going to do and getting my teams into place uh, ahead of where the presenter's going. Um, so yeah, it's, it's quite amazing and like get to work with the most amazing people all over the world. So yeah, very lucky. 
you're stopping people like me from killing themselves, which <laughs> I don't envy that job at all. Oh, um, I don't know. I think, you know, like, I mean, a lot of like the camera guys, you know, that I work with, you know, some of them I've been working with for over sort of 10 years now. Um, and, you know, they're all so competent in the environment. And this is what's so amazing. It makes my job so much more enjoyable is that most of these guys are so competent, but, you know, they're there to do a job. Uh, their job is to capture, you know, the action on camera. And then, you know, my job within that is then to just make sure that they don't, you know, when they're looking down the lens, they're not going to wobble off a cliff or you know, get bitten by some uh, poisonous snake or something. So where did all of this start then? What was your childhood like? Um, my childhood was, was so much fun. Like when I remember back on it, you know, it was spent out, outdoors. I suppose I was very, very fortunate that both my parents were really into the outdoors. Um, they were both geography teachers originally. Uh, my dad was a geologist. And um, I recently actually stumbled across uh, some old journals that he'd written when I was helping my parents move house. Uh, and I was like reading through this like incredible journal of like he'd um, been on some geology expedition um, into Greenland and um, they were working on this island um, and there was this all this these stories about how like at night they they couldn't go to sleep because they'd have to sit up like defending themselves from like the local um, Inuit's dogs that in, during the summer they put them onto this island and then occasionally turn up and throw them a load of fish and things but these things are like you know they're they're not pets <laughs> they're pretty they're wild animals and they're not afraid of of people so they were having to like actually sort of fend these creatures off and then uh, later on it talks about they were somewhere else in the world and uh, the expedition leader went mad and started was chasing them through the forest with a shotgun. <laughs> and it's like you're reading these and it's just like bloody hell is this my dad like <laughs> it's just incredible so um, yeah, I suppose it was sort of in the blood, really. And um, I grew up uh, in the Malverns, like in the Malvern Hills in Worcestershire. Uh, and I suppose like a real defining moment for me was cycling home from school one day and I was on my dad's really old bike. And uh, I just wondered if I could uh, cycle along the hills. I'd have been like eight or nine at the time, I think. Um, and I was like riding this bike and I went up on the hills and I just remember this one bit like coming down this quite steep sort of gravelly track um, and just being totally out of control. Uh, my hands were like jammed on the brakes, like nothing was happening, skidding all over the place. And the basket had fallen off the back and was like dragging along behind me. And I just remember having this massive grin on my face. And I was like, this is what it's all about, you know, and and after that, it then became about pushing boundaries, you know, like exploring like my own like physical and mental capabilities. And I knew nothing about uh, like training principles or any of that. So, you know, I'd go out and I'd go out cycling and I'd got I really got into running about the same time. And every day I'd go out uh, on my way back from school. Uh, and I push myself and those days where I felt tired or I felt slow, I would push myself harder. I'd go further because I thought I was getting weak. <laughs> it was actually, you know, it was part of the whole training principles. Um, and I and I really think that that's actually a huge part of, you know, why I'm able to deal you know, and to put aside like pain and, you know, I suppose emotions as well, to some extent, you know, when I'm operating in, you know, what are often quite extreme and often hostile environments. What were you like as a teenager then? <laughs> um, I, well, I, I, I really struggled actually, like when I was at school, I kind of struggled to fit in. Um, 
Um, I, I, mean, I was very, very fortunate, I suppose, that my dad was a geography teacher in a private school. So I got to go to this school um, for free, um, which is amazing. And I'm very, very grateful for it now because it's opened up, uh, you know, other doors and things and allowed me to sort of, I suppose, um, you know, move through worlds, different worlds, uh, which is incredible. Uh, but at the time, I, I really struggled. Um, I struggled to sit still. I struggled to concentrate. Um, you know, I had sort of being stuck inside, I kind of had this sort of like anxiety, like in my chest that would kind of build up and I'd end up then exploding and like being sent out. And I spent a lot of time like in detention and like <laughs> sat outside of classrooms, uh, for being disruptive. Um, and I suppose I, I just really struggled. I didn't know what was wrong with me. Nobody else seemed to have this problem. Um, and then, you know, I, d I had this sort of experience with the mountain bike and, you know, suddenly every day I was out and pushing myself and I just found this arena like uh, in the outdoors where I could express myself, I could be myself and there was a freedom. Um, and, you know, even sort of running around on you know, sports pitches and, you know, I was, I just couldn't really understand, you know, these imaginary sort of four sort of boundaries on this, you know, sports pitch that you couldn't cross. And there were all these rules. And then I was, I'd be sort of running around on this pitch and looking at the, the Malvern Hills behind and just being like, this is like crazy. Like, what, what is the point of this? There's this whole world out there to explore. Um, and uh, about that time, I, I got into um, fencing, like uh, sabre fencing, like sword fighting. Uh, and I kind of got into it by accident, really. Like a friend of mine was like, um, asked me to come along and join her for like judo session. I had no idea what judo was. And I walked into this sports hall um, on one end, there were people rolling around in pajamas, and the other end, there were like people hitting each other with swords. <laughs> so I was like, I hope that's judo. Um, and the um, the the coach uh, called me over, like for the for the fencing, for the sword fighting, and asked me if I wanted to have a go. I was like, Yeah, hell yeah, that looks fun. Um, and you know, within a few weeks, I'd been signed up for the British team, <laughs> and, and then actually um, spent about three years actually fencing for the for the British team and for for the for the Welsh team, and was actually ranked uh, well, actually second in the in the country, like for not even just under twenty ones, but for for women. Um, but and like at the weekends, I was going off to these countries, and I I'd, I'd never had I hadn't had the opportunities as a child to to travel. Um, my my dad was a teacher, my mum had given up, and I'm the oldest of four, so you know there wasn't really sort of the resources to be able to go travelling, and it was something that I'd I'd always wanted to do. Um, and then I got this opportunity at the weekends to go off to you know these World Cups in Italy and France and and places. Um, but I just found myself trapped within these like breeze block concrete structures with often with no windows uh, and I was just like I'm in these amazing countries but I can't explore <laughs> and again I went through that sort of thing of feeling trapped and then totally rebelled against it all and like <laughs> I remember like sort of going off and getting very drunk one night and then not, not being so welcome <laughs> anymore and I by that stage I'd had enough you know um I felt it was so restrictive and and things um and then uh, then I discovered oh I became involved with the military cadets um and through that I managed to get involved with as much adventurous training as I could get my hands on um so I'd be winter climbing in Scotland you know this was from the age of about 14 um uh win winter climbing in Scotland and whitewater kayaking you know mountaineering in Snowdonia uh and I was away as much as possible sort of with the with the military cadets um and I really found my place within that and sort of again pushing myself um sort of yeah within this sort of whole arena that had just suddenly opened up to me and 
I suppose all my family holidays and things, we had a caravan. Uh, my parents would tow away and, you know, we'd go exploring Snowdonia and uh, up to the Lake District and things and go hiking. So I think I was just, I was so lucky really that I, f- I found the outdoors at such a young age because I think, you know, knowing myself and sort of my personality, I could very easily have got into some, like a whole load of crap really that <laughs> I'm very glad it isn't part of my life. Yeah, it's amazing how how much of a positive impact adventure and you know exploration and getting outside can have on a teenager yeah it really does and like I think this is something like in this like in the way that we live now and like the modern world and things um is really really important like I think I'm really lucky and I'd imagine like for yourself as well that I grew up just before Facebook came in. Like I remember Facebook started when I was about 16 or 17. And I I remember having conversations with my friends of like, what a ridiculous thing. Like, you know, why would we want to see other people sharing their lives? (laughs) And like, we just, we just totally like turned away from it. And like, it was only when I, um, I spent a year out in New Zealand, um, when I left school so at 17 I went out to New Zealand for a year um ended up working outdoor centre out there but it's a whole other story but it wasn't until then that I actually got Facebook and that was then more to share pictures with friends and family because it was such a great platform for being able to do that it was never my intention to share it with the world you know it was a, it was an intimate uh platform um but I think now like the way that uh, children live and the structure and the competition you know for jobs and to get grades there isn't very much room in their lives for creativity and expressing themselves and actually being able to like sort of develop uh, their identity and be able to you know know who they are as as people um and i think that that's that's really really hard um and i used to do a lot of youth expedition work um so I used to take kids off to nepal for a month or you know um the jungles and deserts and things all over the world um and so often like towards the end of sort of when i sort of move move more into the tv side of things um i'd see more and more kids diagnosed with depression and anxiety and i see that still you know with the private guiding that i do you know i often get adults who've got been diagnosed with depression and anxiety um and i'm sure it's just down to the way that we live now you know we um this sort of the modern world and the sort of the way life is now is so hectic you know it's not necessarily you know one thing that's causing stress it's a whole host of things and it's not always something major either that you can really sort of pinpoint exactly what it is Uh, but it all builds up and all this stimuli and stimulation that comes in and like you end up with your body being chronically stressed and you know the stress response was never meant to be chronic it's this incredible survival mechanism um, that's there to keep you alive so you know when you're um, for our ancestors it would have been you know saber-toothed tiger hiding in the bushes you know the the fight or flight or freeze um, sort of reaction that stress response would kick in to help keep you alive Um, and it was supposed to last for you know an hour two hours and then die back down again but keeping it chronically sort of um, stimulated chronically on like causes like long-term you know health issues both physically and emotionally um and this is like a state that we seem to be living in a lot um so for young people you know finding ways to disconnect from this crazy world that we live in is so important and i think this is why actually encouraging people to get outside more you know young people uh, and adults alike just to go and spend time in nature and you know this is something i stress it's not about you know going to climb everest or you know going out and doing some really gnarly stuff it's actually just going for a walk you know leaving your phone behind going for a walk with your dog or with your kids um, and actually just spending time just looking out in what is actually our natural habitat yeah i think that's 
pretty solid advice. Um, yeah, did you feel like this when you were a teenager, when you decided to move to New Zealand, or were you just hunting for adventure? <laughs> I don't think I ever knew about adventure. I think growing up, um, because my parents had both come from, um, sort of, I suppose, backgrounds where they were... Uh, you know, they sort of, I suppose they'd made them a better life for themselves. Um, like my dad had, you know, done very well academically and, you know, my mum, you know, sort of being female as well has kind of pushed through um, barriers to sort of get to where they were um, and, you know, make money and uh, I suppose have like a, a steady income and things that, you know, that our parents' generations um, would have actually seen as like it was very, very important. Um, you know, and then I just couldn't fit into that, you know, so I didn't know that there was a career outside of academia. Like I assumed sort of going through, you know, and society tells us, you know, you'll go to school, you'll, um, you'll get a job, you'll get married, you'll have children, (laughs) um, and all these things that, you know, you're told that those things are going to happen. And when they don't happen or when they don't, things don't fall into place, it can be, you know, it can be quite sort of, um, turbulent times really um and yeah I think those those things um aren't necessarily the way we live now aren't necessarily as easy to achieve um or as important but yet we still put a lot of importance on those things yeah so what was it like moving to New Zealand aged how old um yeah so I, I went out there at 17 um it was when I was about eight, I got given this book um, by a cousin who was visiting from Australia called The Land of the Long White Cloud. Uh, and in it, there were these just incredible um, stories and pictures. It was like the pictures that captivated me, like these incredible drawings of uh, Maori culture, and Maori folklore. Uh, and there was something about that. I just, you know, I'd be sitting under my covers at night, like with the head torch, like looking at these, just these beautiful images. And I wanted to go to New Zealand, like I knew I was going to go there and I, I just couldn't wait to get there. Um, so, yeah, it was when I was leaving school, I ended up um, working for the summer for um, like an outdoor centre. Like it was a sort of PGL equivalent at the time um, down in Weymouth. And I spent the summer working there to earn enough um, to uh, to pay for my flight out to New Zealand. Um, and I went out to New Zealand and ended up working in a school initially. Uh, and after like a couple of weeks of photocopying and making tea, I was like, I'm not spending my year doing this. This sucks. Um, so I left. I bought a little car for like two hundred dollars and <laughs> um, went driving around South Island of New Zealand and just coincidentally just ran into a couple of guys who'd um, start an apprenticeship in this outdoor centre in the middle of the Lewis Pass in South Island. Um, and one of the guys had recently dropped out. So um, I I called the outdoor centre and said I was interested in taking his place and they gave it to me. Um, so I spent the rest I spent the rest of that year um, training as a raft guide and taking people what they call tramping, like going out hiking in the, the backcountry and camping and taking groups of kids climbing and things. Um, and that was really like sort of the start of like my outdoor career. Um, and suddenly, you know, you could there was actually a career in this. Uh, and after that, I came back to the UK. I picked up my uh, sort of some of my British outdoor qualifications. So I picked up my uh, mountain leader. It was actually my 18th birthday present, <laughs> which is awesome. Um, and various other outdoor qualifications at the time. Uh, and that's kind of how I helped fund my way through university was actually taking people out. And I did a degree in outdoor education uh, and I'd take people out uh, climbing and mountain walking and things to help sort of pay my, pay my way. Um, and then when I was coming up to sort of to leaving, I had this experience um, 
where I was bivvying out above Beaufort Buttress in the Lake District and I was just by myself and um, I just remember just sitting there uh, next to my bivvy bag and just thinking like I just had this sort of this sort of thought process went through my head that again was like another sort of defining moment in my life really was that everything I do I call myself an outdoor enthusiast and everything I do is to protect myself from nature you know I put up my tent and I'm creating a barrier you know I put on my Gore-Tex I'm creating a barrier you know I go rock climbing and I put my protection in the rock and you know I'm fighting against nature and it's I call myself an outdoor enthusiast an outdoor pursuits instructor but I know very little about this environment that I'm actually spending time in um and it was just like, I was just like, wow, this is crazy. <laughs> and a total coincidence, like a few days later, a friend of mine was going uh, to a talk um, done by a bushcraft company. And I had no idea what bushcraft was. And it just sounded like this crazy, wacky thing. Uh, and I was just, I wasn't doing anything else. Um, so I was just like, yeah, I'll come along. So I went along and I was just like, I just blown away by um, this guy talking about like bushcraft and, you know, how tree wasn't just a tree uh, you know, it had all these incredible properties and like all these plants uh, had all these sort of medicinal properties. And, and I was like, wow, this is what is missing. Like, you know, this sort of depth of knowledge. Um, and I actually, I called the uh, bushcraft company, the guy afterwards, uh, and they were looking for apprentices. And I was like, well, there's no way I'll get a job. I have no experience in this, but for some reason they gave it to me. <laughs> um, and I spent a couple of years actually um, working for them over the summers doing an apprenticeship uh, with them over the summers and in the winters teaching off-road driving in the lakes. Um, and it was amazing. I started leading expeditions with them or working with them on expeditions uh, where we were actually going and spending time with native peoples. Uh, and, you know, we'd go out and spend weeks with the Sam Bushmen and then put their skills into practice uh, in these environments. Um, and suddenly he, this whole this whole new sort of area opened up to me and... You know, like, it, I suppose my mind is, like, it's constantly questioning. I'm one of those really annoying people, like, in a training course that is always asking questions. And you know, everyone else is like, shut the fuck up. Like, <laughs> but, you know, I, I can't, like, I need to know. Like, I have these questions and I need an answer. And I'll go exploring for those answers. And there was something about, like, the bushcraft and the survival elements of that, um, you know, of being able to actually, being able to ask questions in nature and being able to get those answers back and you know being able to travel and spend time with native peoples and skill share and you know see how they're living and a lot of these skills that are being lost from all these incredible cultures around the world uh, because they don't write stuff down they don't believe in sharing their stuff um, in that way you know it's word of mouth but it has to be to other members of your your tribe and they won't share with westerners and it's you know seeing that in action is just incredible um and it's a topic you can never know you you know you can never know everything um and what i find so fascinating is like the similarities in like beliefs um and in skill sets from people that are so unrelated you know different ends you know the inuit and the sam bushman yeah they have they see the stars and they have the same stories behind these these stars and it's like how on earth has that happened you know that they've created these these stories and these folklore and all of this that is so so similar and so related but yet they're peoples that have supposedly never interacted it's just incredible yeah it is incredible so what changed then? What what stopped you carrying on working as, you know, a bushcraft instructor and travelling around with the Sam people? 
Um, I think like for me with like the, the bushcraft side of things, um, I, I love it. Um, but for me, it was very static. Um, you know, you get a lot of, you know, you typically you see, you know, there's the parachute up and there's the fire underneath the parachute and everyone sits around and kind of whittle spoons and things. And, you know, I, I love it. And it's such a, 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 a beautiful environment um, and it's so immersive as well. And what I really loved was that, you know, often um, for something about that environment that enabled people to sort of bring up issues and problems and emotional emotions that you know maybe they suppress elsewhere in life so there's something very beautiful about that uh, but for me like I suppose I'm a little bit hyperactive I struggle to sit still um, so I need that sort of dynamic side of things a bit more um, and I ended up actually moving out to Switzerland and I was running an outdoor program in a school uh, and then in the school holidays which were very long um, I was still I started leading expeditions with um, with kids and adults and um, sort of going off that way and I worked at this school for about four years and then moved from there over to Chamonix and was living there for about six years um, and leading expeditions working in the Alps um, and that's when I started getting involved with like the TV side of things. And suddenly, like with the TV side of things, I could mix, you know, this whole host of random skills that I'd sort of accumulated over the years. Because uh, initially I was hired to do the ropes side of things. But when they realised I had like the survival and the bushcraft skills as well, you know, suddenly I was able to combine like the bushcraft and the survival and the rope rigging, um, the guiding, sort of the expedition leading and put it all together Oops. into like a into a package that um yeah I suppose well for them I suppose it's cheaper isn't it they just need to employ one person <laughs> rather than lots um and yeah it's just just amazing and I suppose it's kind of gone from there and it's grown and you know I've had all these amazing opportunities that you know I wouldn't necessarily have had otherwise yeah and so before we talk about the tv work what were you doing in Chamonix then what were the expeditions you were doing in Chamonix yeah, so um, so when I was based in Chamonix, um, I was doing like quite a lot of like international mountain leader work. Um, so sort of taking people out there, combining it with like the bushcraft stuff. I was also training um, bushcraft and survival instructors in Switzerland, um, and I was leading expeditions. So I used to do like a lot of youth expeditions, so expedition work, you know, for companies like World Challenge, Outlook Expeditions. Um, and I had my own company with my partner um, and we were started doing private guiding. So though, and I loved those because those were like bespoke expeditions where um, somebody would get in touch and they'd be like, you know, we've got this amazing idea. Like, we'd love to go here. Can you set that up? Um, or, you know, as I sort of sort of worked with clients over the years, it would get to the stage where they were like, we want to go and have a cool adventure. Where would you suggest? And like, that just was amazing. Like to be in a position where I'm just like, okay, where would I like to go on holiday? And like, um, and I love the logistic side of things. You know, it's like a puzzle kind of putting together all those pieces um, of the puzzle. So, you know, when you're on expedition, like, as you know, like things never go as planned. It, it always changes. And it's, you know, and it's, if you're not careful, they, those things snowball. Um, so for me, it's always really important to have this like solid network of or net of um, stuff behind me. So I know what my escape and evacuation or evasion sort of side of things, you know, I know how I can get people out. Um, I know, you know, I know have all the numbers of people to call, all of that. You know, I know what the schedule is. I've got all the transport and everything booked or on, you know, it, so it's flexible so I can move it around. But I like having that there behind me because I know once I get on the ground, things are going to change. And then I've got that net, sort of that net to sort of fall back into uh, should I need it. 
and how often do you need it? Um, like, well, like I said, like, I mean, like most expeditions that I've done, like, you know, something's changed and, you know, when you're, when you're very remote, I mean, it's great now. Like when I first started, uh, working on expeditions, you know, the satellite phones were like these whole like briefcases, <laughs> like they were huge, uh, and they were totally impractical to take out with you, uh, unless you had like porters or mules and things with you. Um, and now it's a whole different story and you've like, it's much more smaller and everything's much more accessible, um, and easier to pack. Uh, but yeah, at the time it was, it was really important because we didn't have that backup behind us. So it was, you know, making sure I had in-country contacts that knew where I was, that if I hadn't checked in by a certain time, you know, knew in what area I would be operating. Um, and this is what's so amazing like now with like technology and things and, you know, has really opened up the world of exploration, um, because of, you know, satellite connectivity and things that happen. And are there any times that, I mean, there will be, it's a loaded question. Are there any times that stick out as moments where you think, oh, thank God we had a proper evac plan or a safety plan? Or Yeah, I mean, this, this, happens, this happens a lot. And, you know, this was actually something that um, when I, I, I was fortunate enough to be asked to write a book a few years ago called um, Mind of a Survivor. And when I was writing the book, I, the hardest bits that I actually found um, to put in was not like the theory and like sort of my ideas of why people interact the way they do with nature was more like the stories because you know when I'm working in these environments and particularly because I'm looking after people in those environments you have to be able to control your emotions Um, and I actually find it really hard to remember (laughs) those times when which have been challenging because in those moments I've suppressed my emotions I've suppressed my fear my anxiety so that I can actually deal with the situation but yeah you know there's been several um times when you know i've been sort of caught in the gunfire of like warring tribes um i've actually been chased through um the jungles of thailand by armed opium farmers that was rather exciting um and you know stalked by large predators and (laughs) things but you know these things it just comes down to sort of being needing to be aware you know i've just been working in panama and the the i've been working on one of the uh, pearl islands um, and this island's got saltwater crocodiles um, and they're massive. They're like 14 foot long. We've sort of seen them in the rivers. Uh, and because we're going to be going back there to film um, and we're going to be using a lot of like the water courses and things, it's, you know, and I'm having to go down and check underneath the water for uh, obstacles, you know, in case people are jumping off or repelling and things. And you, you're sort of underwater and you're just, like, you're just waiting for something to grab you. <laughs> um, but it's like, sort of, I suppose, being prepared, being aware Um, when you're operating in these environments and you know I travel to these environments so much that you know stuff will happen uh, and you know and I accept the risk of that and you know I suppose for me as part of what I enjoy about it as well is that unknown you know going into the unknown (laughs) yeah I mean it is part of it I think it's it's maybe a separate conversation maybe we'll come back to it later but it's definitely a large part of why I do it is the I don't want to say the thrill or the rush, but it's the adventure. No, it is a thrill and a rush, isn't it? Because it's like that adrenaline and things that, you know, pumps through your system. But like, I mean, I don't know for you, but like for me, it's not so much about like the adrenaline or hunting down the adrenaline, which is what people assume. It's actually more about the control and the control of yourself within that environment. I mean, is that something that you find? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that especially coming from a a certain background, you know, I'm not ex-military, neither are you. I've never been trained in how to manage fear or how to manage emotion. Um, And it's really interesting watching myself, you know, 10 years after I started doing this, 
managing fear and thinking, hang on, how am I doing this? Oh, wait, it's because I've dangled on a rope for 150 days with a camera and I'm starting to understand what that's like. That's incredible. Yeah. yeah so <laughs> but it's... I think, I mean, as you mentioned like 150 days, you know, that's probably like a fraction of what you've really done with all of that. And I think that that's, that's something that like is, like I'm also very passionate about is equipping people with the right experience and you know i think this is where social media for me like i have like conflicting emotions about it i think it's brilliant because it now opens up this whole arena where you can find role models and you know if you're struggling you can find people who are going through similar stuff and have maybe found answers but on the flip side you know people seem to be having like these perfect lives and and things and there's a lot of play on words and a lot of um sort of twisting of the truth i suppose um and particularly within like adventure and the adventure community and you know I don't think people are necessarily always honest or don't necessarily you know have the background that they may be saying that they do within these to be to be going out there um because like you said you know to get the skills to be able to operate in these environments you have to have put years and years of training and uh, in finances like to fund qualifications or training um and things and that I think is hidden on social media and stuff of what it's actually taken somebody to get to the stage where they can go off and do a polar expedition or, you know, a cycle across, you know, wherever, wherever they're going. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And, you know, some of these people who are actually going out and doing this stuff, I think are very, very lucky because they don't know what they don't know. They don't necessarily have that, those skills or that, you know, that ground time or dirt time under their feet. Uh, they've just been very, very fortunate Um to have got through that that experience and you know they're inspiring but uh yeah i'd love to see see that change and that sort of there be more transparency in what it actually takes to go and do you know one of these trips like like you're doing as well yeah i guess that as well we avoid talking about the times where it goes wrong on social media unless it went wrong enough that it becomes a hollywood disaster movie and actually, it's the times where it goes wrong that teach us the most. And I can definitely think of a few times where I've thought, oh, right, OK, that's not how I do things. This is how I'm going to do them moving forwards based on the negative experience. Yeah. So I guess that's that's something I'd change about social media, definitely in the adventure world, is everybody pretending it goes perfectly all the time. Yeah. <laughs> well, not everybody. That's really unfair. Lots of people pretending it goes really well all the time. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, it's, a, it's a tricky one. And it's like, like I would love to see that because I think it's great that you know there's a lot of people being empowered and inspired to get outside um but not necessarily being equipped with the right information and I see that you know I live up here in uh, North Wales um I'm hardly ever here but when I am back here you know I tend to go running in the mountains and climbing and things and you know I see more and more people like out in the mountains which is great um but you know so often there'll be somebody standing on the summit like with their flapping map and they don't know which way round it goes and like <laughs> you know where am I can you help me um 
or wearing completely inappropriate clothing. And you know, when I talk to Mountain Rescue um, and you hear the stories of them going out and they're going out more frequently to things that should be preventable and you know should have been thought about before those people went out um you know and I don't it's nobody's fault you know it's just that there's a lack of information and I'd love to see that change I'd love to see uh more outdoor instructors guides having a voice um on these platforms uh, and being more accessible uh with the information that you know that they've taken years and years to accumulate and acquire uh, from doing you know pushing themselves in in those environments yeah that's a very very good idea i hadn't thought about it like that we could be using these platforms for training as much as anything else even if it's yeah little bits of information here and there yes yeah i'd, I'd love to see that i mean i think it's you know Obviously, if, like, if you're really into rock climbing, if you're a rock climbing instructor, you're really into rock climbing and you're just posting pictures of rock climbing, you know, that, that only appeals to a small number of people. Um, you know, and I think this is where, you know, those people that are going out and doing expeditions have, you know, are able to reach further because their everyday lives are not you know, instructing and not um, adventure every single day. So they, they know how to be more accessible. Uh, and I think that's just, that's down to sort of education and making people more aware of, you know, what's interesting and what the public, you know, um, sort of resonate with, I suppose. So if you're willing, I'll put you on the spot then. What, you know, when people look at your social media, do you think there are any misconceptions? Do you think people miss bits about the reality of being <laughs> Megan Hine? Oh, absolutely. And this is, I mean, this is something that, you know, I, I tend to use my, my small um platforms to uh to sort of i suppose talk about like mental health and things which is like a real issue and get people to question the way they view the world it's so easy i think with how life is now to just be a passenger and um yeah sort of just go on this ride you know it's quite a turbulent ride uh, but not take ownership and that's what i'm really sort of trying to encourage people to do is to take ownership you know every situation that anybody's in it's because of a series of decisions and things that you've taken to get there and i know stuff happens that's completely out of our control uh, but then it's how you deal with it afterwards and taking ownership and actually being like yes i'm in this situation how do i better this rather than being a victim um so, yeah, I know I might get a lot of comments, you know, you've got the perfect life and, and things. And, you know, there's times that I want to reply to those you know, those people and say, well, actually, it's not as perfect as it looks. You know, I yes, I spend sort of 10, 11 months of the year away in incredible environments. Um, but, you know, I have a job which has a huge amount of responsibility. I'm literally responsible for the lives of everybody who's on set, who's in those environments, who's filming. You know, I'm responsible for the lives of, you know, pretty big celebrities you know a-list celebrities um that's massive and as our budgets get cut and our time gets cut things are moving faster and there's a huge amount of stress and you know there's obviously like sort of politics involved with it all and things as well um so you know it's not as you know as rosy as it looks i wouldn't change it and i've worked really really hard to get to where i am and i love it and i wouldn't change it uh, for anything but um yeah i suppose there's that there's the reality as well behind the images and you know that's something that i try to um show to, to my followers and sort of the sort of my wording and stuff of things um is that you know you're only seeing a snapshot into somebody's life you don't know the journey it's taken to get that picture um and you know and i think that that's a lot of the time what's what's missing yeah especially when you you know i was sat there listening and you say i did i went to new zealand and i did a year's apprenticeship i went to university where i studied outdoor leadership i you know did a bushcraft apprenticeship taught there for two years you know none of these things are 
they're not accidents you know yeah maybe there's a small amount of right place right time involved in the initial meeting yeah but actually there's effort and graft there that I think a lot of people overlook yeah and I think you know the the whole thing of luck I mean yes you can be lucky to be in the right place at the right time to have an opportunity um, but you're not going to be keep being asked back for that opportunity unless you can do a good job and you can put in the work um, for that so yeah so it's luck might be an initial factor but that's not what carries you through yeah absolutely and then again we're trying not to get too heavy with it but what about personal lives like in terms of you know I, it's something I think about a lot with I don't want to turn this whole conversation into a social media rant but <laughs> but we easily could and we mustn't but it, I think there's a huge misconception on what this does to our personal lives I mean I've just come back from a trip. I was in Edinburgh for two days. I got the train down to Sheffield, spent one night in my own bed and then drove here this morning. And, you know, I'm going somewhere else tonight. Yeah. How do you find living away for 10, 11 months of the year? Yeah, um, I mean, it's, it's pretty much like, you know, we were just saying, it's like, I know you've, you've only spent a couple of nights in, in your own bed. And like, you know, I've, I've, this light last night was the first night, like I'm at home. And it's like, I really appreciate, you know, the fact that you've come to me in North Wales. Um because yeah, like I suppose my schedule is so fluid, and it's uh, it's not even like you know that I know where I'm going to be next week. It's like it's all over the place, um, and you know I'm literally being jumped like bounced from environment to environment, and having to make sure I've got the right kit and stuff like my jungle kit as well as my Arctic kit and things with me. Um, but it plays havoc, you know, on like a social life, or you know I get asked to do like a lot of talks and and things, but you know I can never do them because I can never lock myself down into one day. Um, and yeah, it's it's tough at times. You know, it's very very hard to have a social life, and that's something that's really important as humans. You know, we're herd animals; we need other people, and we need to have those interactions, uh, and we need to download sometimes as well, and remove completely remove ourselves from you know situations that we're in all the time so for me you know it's removing myself from the politics of the work that that I'm is sort of goes on behind the scenes sometimes um and sort of I suppose recharge and those are those that's really important but yeah if your fluid your schedule so fluid it's very very hard um to have those things that maybe some people you know a lot of people would take for granted um you know it sort of brings up you know how to you know have a family um you know how i'm very lucky that my partner does a similar work to myself otherwise i've absolutely no idea like how i'd have have a relationship (laughs) it would be it would be impossible like i don't know how how i'd meet somebody um and i'm sure that they wouldn't put up with me being away (laughs) for most of the year um yeah so that's that's really tough yeah we manage somehow so what does it do to you in terms of your relationships with the people that you're working with, though, because if you're working with the same people regularly, I mean, the things that you go through together, you know, obviously they must breed fairly tight bonds. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's something that's um, that's amazing. And I work with some incredible people. And I suppose from the sort of filming side of things, some of these guys, you know, I've been working with for over a decade now. Um, and I know how they work. They know how I work. Um, but it also means, you know, that if I've been away for months on end, when they come out to film, it's like, you know, it's like seeing your family. It's like, you know, catching up with friends. Um, and, you, you know, some of these some of these guys, you know, I've never been to their houses. I've never met their families. Um, but yet while we're working, you know, you have this incredible bond with them. And I know that I can always ring them up and have a chat if I need to. Um, and it's it's a really cool bond that, you know, that I have with them. And, 
I make sure that like, you know, when I'm traveling and stuff that, you know, I occasionally drop them a WhatsApp and, uh, or a message and you know, kind of stay in touch with them in that way. Um, because I think that's really, really important, uh, you know, as humans and things, because I'm spending so much time away that it'd be very easy to be very isolated and be very lonely. So, you know, I try to build a bond with the people that I work with, um, and yeah, I mean, so far it seems to seems to be working. Yeah, it's weird. We we were just talking about expeditions before we started this, and you know, I said to you, "Oh, Waldo is one of my closest friends." Well, actually, if you look at the amount of days a year I spend with Waldo, it's not that many. But the things we've done together, whether it's in Greenland or China, or and they're the misadventures off the you know behind the lens as much as on the <laughs> yeah. lens. Uh, the, the stuff that ties us together as much as anything else. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? It's like when I was at university, like, I mean, we, we did some crazy stuff, like when I was doing this sort of degree in outdoor education. Like, it was the first time, I think, that I really came together with people who were of a similar mindset. Um, and, you know, suddenly, like, my behaviour as, like, uh, as a child, as a young adult, um, wasn't so bad. And, you know, there was this whole group of people that understood me. Um, and we'd go and do some crazy stuff, like... Yeah, like looking back on it now, it's like I would never, um, yeah, I'd never like say to anybody, go and do that. Um, And, you know, some of the adventures and things that we had, um, you know, going off because, you know, we'd maybe done very little climbing and we'd just go off and climb this crazy stuff and get ourselves into trouble and, you know, somehow get ourselves out of it. And we were very, very lucky, I think. You know, I remember like in the winters in the Lake District, like my first year like there was a really really good winter and uh you know we'd be up at the student union until like midnight and then we'd go back and get a couple of hours sleep and then you know then we'd go ice climbing because the ice was in um and then we'd be back to lectures by nine o'clock in the morning and we'd do this for like days on end and it's like i don't know how we functioned um and it's but yeah the bonds that i have with those guys and like some of this crazy shit that we did like you know I'm still friends with them right now, you know, however many years on. Um, and, you know, I might not see them or speak to them for months and months or years sometimes, but you meet up with them and you've got this bond, you know, you've you've been through like hell, you know, you've shared tears and like <laughs> this fear with them. Um, and yeah, it's just incredible. You can't beat that, I don't think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So jumping around all over the place, you were living in Chamonix. Yeah. And you were doing all of the expedition work. And how did the TV work come about? Um, so that was actually, I mean, just before I moved to Chamonix, that was when I was working at the school. Um, and I was looking to um, I was looking to go back into sort of more bushcraft style instruction um, and to keep up like sort of the expedition leading and sort of the mountaineering side of things. Because I suppose like in, when I first, my career first started, like I loved the mountains. I was obsessed with the mountains and that was where I was going like I was that's sort of the main reason why I took the job out in the Alps was because I was so focused on the IFMGA and becoming a mountain guide um, and that was I was working towards that all the ski touring all the rock climbing all the ice climbing everything that I was doing was aimed towards that and then I started um, doing expeditions and thankfully and gratefully was very like sent off to the mountains you know I went to Himalaya and things to do expeditions out there um, and then along came the TV work and it was my final year of uh, working in this school um, and I was looking to do more sort of mixing the bushcraft a little bit more too. Um, so I went back and ended up doing a, a couple of courses one summer with them in the UK. Um, and they just started doing the consultancy for the original Man vs. Wild with Bear Grylls. Um, and they needed a rope 
person to come and help out. I had no idea who Bear Grylls was and I had didn't watch TV, um, but it sounded like a pretty cool adventure. Um, so I went out and um, I yeah did the ropes um, for, for that, like the rope safety for that. And um, it, yeah, I just, I loved the team and I got on really well with Bear uh and i just i kept getting asked back <laughs> it was like kind of just went from there really i got asked to do like a lot of other shows uh as well so initially i was doing various different shows um but so i suppose over the years um i got yeah sucked into sort of bear's team and yeah i've been very very fortunate with that and uh, had some amazing opportunities because of that um but it kind of put my plans on you know the mountain guiding on hold because suddenly I wasn't just being sent to mountains I was being sent to jungles and deserts and you know all over the place um and yeah I didn't necessarily have enough you know have the time to then be focused on you know ticking off like the classic north faces and, and things that I really wanted to do um but yeah so I think that's that's how the tv side of things started but that's how it works though isn't it you know we all have plans and they don't survive yeah because yeah stuff gets in the way yeah and I think it's having that flexibility and that you know being open-minded to to those opportunities um has just yeah opened up this this whole thing and like I've like done done a few bits in front of camera and you know later in the year there's something coming out um that I was in front of camera for um and that again that was another side of things that I never even thought would be a possibility or that I was even actually interested in doing um it was the same with uh, with writing my book as well you know like I'm an outdoor instructor I'm like a climbing instructor uh you know mountain leader or you know um instructor and you know I never thought that I'd have I never imagined that I would have any sort of platform or voice or anything and the way that I saw that I could make a difference in the world was by through the people that I led out to you know to the on these expeditions to go and see political issues or environmental issues and immerse them in different cultures and open their eyes to the world. And I thought, you know, they'd go on and become lawyers or doctors or teachers and they'd be able to make a difference in the world. Um, so, you know, to be able to have like a tiny little platform uh, is just blows my mind and is absolutely incredible. And yeah, something I would never take for granted. Yeah, it is incredible. As, as, uh, as I'm sure it will be for you, it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out because I think there's a... You know, it's just my opinion, but I think there's a big shift at the minute where TV and even um, like branded content to an extent want to see the people who are, who have sort of been doing it for 10 years, as it were. I mean, some of the most popular sections of Frozen Planet, Blue Planet, things like that are the 10 minute end of the, yeah. you know, how did we make this? How did we abseil into here? How did, you know, we get the, um, the Hawk cam footage yes, yeah. for whichever program it was? So yeah. it's, it's interesting. I think, I mean, TV is definitely, definitely changing, you know, it's, it's great. Like if sort of being like on the inside of it all and seeing how it's evolving and, and things is changing and like that authenticity is like a really important thing that's happening at the moment. But, you know, but it's also like the platforms are changing as well. You know, like um, the TV, you know, like TV channels as we kind of uh, know them or sort of grew up with, um, they're, it's all going to change this is a really exciting time for that side of, of life because you know the platforms Netflix Amazon Facebook you know they're, that's the future of TV that's where it's going to be in that social media style of, of creating content um, and it's, this is it's a really interesting time and I'm very excited to be involved with like, the TV industry and that side of things now because I think it's going to go through an evolution and it's going to be a very quick uh, evolution as well and it's really exciting yeah so 
Speaking of exciting, so on the ground, you know, over the last 10 years, however many years of TV work, what have been the highlights? <laughs> um, I think, I mean, for me, it's like, I mean, it sounds a bit cheesy, but it's like it's making the lifestyle work. You know, it's the fact that, you know, I have a lot of work on. I don't take it for granted. You know, it might all stop tomorrow. You know, I might injure myself. You know, you just don't know. Um, but it's making that lifestyle work. You know, the fact that I get to go to these incredible places and, you know, see the peoples that live there, uh, see the animals, um, you know, and actually see... Uh, you know climate change in action um you know the effects of pollution on the world you know the you know it's a big thing at the moment like the plastic and stuff you know so just being on this island in panama and you're seeing all these like rafts of plastic coming past and and stuff and you know i think being able to see all those things um and having my eyes opened to the world uh i think for me that is just that that's what it's all about yeah are there any particular moments that really stand out for you as being, you know, when you think about your career, are there particular images that just appear in front of you? <laughs> um, I think there's like, you know, there's the highs and lows of like, you know, like with everything, with all, any job that you do. Um, and for me, it's like, it's the people. Um, I don't know if you find that, but, you know, you can be in the most amazing place, but you working you know there's a group of assholes that you're working with and it can totally like destroy the place because that's all you're focused on is trying to get that team to work together or whatever it is and then you can be in the toughest job um like i've spent like quite a lot of time in china over the past few years um and it's a culture i find absolutely fascinating and i really enjoy being there uh, but it is an incredibly hard place to work. Um, culturally, it's very, very different. Um, the work ethics are very, very different. The way they view human life is very different. Um, so I remember this one, you know, this one project I've been working on, and um, they work their staff like twenty-four hours a day. And this was like this was a long project. We were out there for like three months. Um, and this art what guy from the art department from the Chinese side had just been working twenty-four hours a day. Uh, I think they were trying to build a pond <laughs> I can't really remember um, and he was sitting he was sat on a wall um, and fell asleep just and fell off backwards and landed on this pinnacle of rock uh, broke his back uh, and his crew his side the Chinese side of the crew just left him and uh, and wouldn't help him uh, so we stepped in and got him out evacuated him got him out got him off to hospital uh, and they just washed their hands of him and this guy's paralyzed you know can never work again probably never walks again uh, no payout nothing you know I don't know if he's got a family he had to support um, and for me that like that there's moments like that that I find really hard but I also and then very very grateful for like just by sheer chance you know the culture and, and things and the support networks and things that we have behind us uh, that we maybe take for granted a lot of the time yeah I, mean, I was going to ask you about times where it didn't go so well but I guess that's one of them yeah yeah and you know and, and you get caught out you know like um so last year or two years ago I was working out in Kenya and um uh, it was around the time when there was like there was a really bad drought out there and there was a lot of uh, cattle being moved around um uh, to watercourses there was a lot of animals sort of all fighting for, for the same sort of like the water that was sort of yeah had become like um sort of like liquid gold really um and uh we were working in one area and i was i was working with my partner actually another guy um and i was one side of the gorge and they were this other side of the gorge and um 
Yes, I was just finishing off rigging my side and I'd got up my phone because we move so quickly, like when we're filming, um, we have to be able to rig really, really quickly. So what I tend to do is like once I've once we've done like a trial rig and I know where all the points are, I tend to take a photo because it helps and I can look at it later and envision it and, you know, uh, sort of visualisation techniques to then when we go in, I can just rig super fast. Um, so I just got out my phone to take a picture of it um, and suddenly like this um, round like just sort of exploded in the sand next to me. Um, and this sort of volley of gunfire like struck uh, all around where I was working. I dived into this sort of little alcove, uh, sort of behind a rock, um, sort of rounds that sort of bouncing off the walls. Um, and was, the, the gunfire like swung slightly because initially I thought they were shooting at me, and then realised that they weren't, but it was just in my direction. Um, and I I managed to sort of get out as it swung round slightly, uh, slid down like this sort of rock face into this river at the bottom where we've been watching crocodiles coming up and down <laughs> sort of run through this river like oh gosh fled over to Geaton and then scramble up the other side and into the cave where the guys the two guys like um were were sheltered um and then the, the sort of the rounds bouncing off the top of the um the cave that we, we were in we were in there for about 20 minutes before we then managed to escape out downstream but we've got no idea what's going on we weren't sure if they were shooting at us or you know what was going on um and we just I suppose very very fortunate and it would just happen that you know one tribe had stolen a load of goats from another tribe and the tribe had tracked them down and you know this gunfire fight uh, sort of had kicked off and then uh, sort of the local rangers had then set an ambush and it, all three parties were like directly above the gorge we were working in and it was we were just caught right in the middle of it um you know so stuff like that you just you know you just can't predict that's going to happen and uh, you know you just have to deal with it on the ground uh it's like in Thailand I was working out in Thailand and I was doing like I was actually in front of camera on that one um, but still responsible for the small film unit and the guy that was looking after him we'd literally been dropped out for like three weeks with nothing um it was only what I could source from the jungle uh to live on and as when you're moving through the jungle you know when you're getting up onto like a a ridge because the sort of the um the tree line becomes you know you can suddenly see the sky rather than sort of dense jungle and I assumed that we were just getting up onto a ridge line because in the jungle you get these sort of steep ridges and a lot of water worn areas and I assumed we were getting up onto this ridge and just popped out and suddenly we're, like, we're in this opium field <laughs> um and you know thankfully like the guys like the guards of these opium fields were actually over the other side uh, and I was able to react in time to get the, the team out and chase through the jungle by these guys with I guess AK-47s or something um and it's like it's in in you know in those moments it was only in that moment because I'd complete coincidence like like just before we'd been dropped out into the jungle I'd been having a conversation with the fixer you know fixer is somebody who helps us get stuff done in country um and he'd been talking about these illegal opium farms that go on and how they're so protective of them because you know they don't want to get caught so anybody venturing in there probably get shot um because they don't want word getting out because the police will come in and just kill anybody in there and burn these areas um, so, so I knew like straight away what it was, and that it was really important that we got out of there. Uh, you know, it's quite a lot of stuff like that. You know, avalanches, landslides, you know, all these things that just happen. <laughs> yeah, it's not often you put tooled up opium farmer into your risk assessment, is it? No, <laughs> no, it's not. Yeah, yeah, and probably won't again because the chance of it happening is. Yeah, but I suppose that's the game we play. You know, the more, the more you go into these environments, the more you know likely it is that something's going to go wrong yeah it is yeah and it's uh, and i for me it's like i accept the risk from like the wildlife i accept accept the risk from like exposure 
um, but I still struggle with the risk, like the people risk. Um, and those are the sort of, I suppose, most exciting or the most sort of dangerous experiences I've had. Uh, you know, I think the animal encounters I've had and things have been sort of close calls. Um, I know that I'm in their home and, you know, I didn't treat them with respect, you know, so I like handling a snake and got bitten. And, you know, I know that I was handling it. That was my fault. You know, I shouldn't have been playing with it. It wouldn't have bitten me. I'm not prey to it otherwise. And it's the same with like, you know, lion encounters and bear encounters and things that I've had. Um, I'm in their environment and I'm where I shouldn't be. Um, but with people, like I just find people so unpredictable. Um, and, you know, there's certain areas... Uh, and again, this sort of like message on, again, social, social media of like, you know, you can travel anywhere. It's such a Western privilege and it's not true. Um, and particularly as a woman, you do need to be so, so careful. There's areas of the world that I've been to that, yes, if you stay on the tourist trails, on tourist areas, you'll be fine. But if you venture off, you probably aren't coming back out again. Um, and knowing that, you know, it's very, very humbling and makes you feel very small and very vulnerable. Yeah, it does make you feel small and vulnerable. But I, this is maybe a controversial thing to say, but I think it's reassuring to know that we can't go everywhere and that there are places in the world that we can't just march into with our red passport and, you know, the Queen demands access, as it says on the front page. I mean, the tribes people of Papua New Guinea probably don't care. No. <laughs> and that, you know, for people who want to go and have an adventure and explore and at a certain level... You know, I think that's probably a... It's so true. And I think that that's something that we, like as Westerners, kind of don't really get sometimes. You know, and that, that's one of the things like, when I was doing like a lot of the youth expedition work that I would see over and over again, because you'd go away for, you know, you take these kids away for a month. And, you know, a huge part of that was like their trek up, uh, you know, peak or a survival experience in the jungle or whatever it was. But then there'd always be like that charity project that uh, like I, part of me like just dreaded <laughs> but part of me was just like this is a life lesson because the majority of the charity projects I did the locals didn't give a toss if we were there or not in fact they'd rather we weren't they'd much rather we just gave them the money and disappeared um you know and that you know for these children were or these young adults were kind of sold this experience of like you know you'll be helping out these people and you know you'll be making a difference and it's like these people just don't want us there and that was like that, I suppose that was a really good life lesson of actually, you know, yeah, we how privileged we are and how that mindset, you know, we need to alter that mindset and we don't have a right to go anywhere we want. And, you know, we do need to be respectful of other people's cultures, which, you know, we're not always, you know, we go in and, you know, treat these places like we have a right to be there. And it's like, you know, I don't, don't believe we have. You know, we're very fortunate that we can go, but it's not a given right. Yeah, I think that's a very, very good ethos and way to live your life i mean the idea that we should be going gently into these places you know the the era of um you know colonialism and just marching into whichever country we fancy is obviously thankfully largely dead and gone you know um there's no need to get political today i don't think but that's obviously a huge positive and it, you know i think it's a very modern um mature and aware way of thinking to say you know i'm a i'm a tourist maybe isn't the right word but i'm i'm a visitor yeah you know, i'm an observer i'm, I'm going to go gently through this place and try yeah. and you know no definitely but i i think that attitude only comes from the experience of being 
being there and actually having seen those cultures and realising that in some of these cultures you really are not welcome and they don't really want you there. They're not interested. You talk about like the tribes in Papua New Guinea. You know, it's like I've did a, I spent a couple of months out in the Amazon um, last year, like September, October, uh, and we had a very similar experiences with the local peoples, like local tribes peoples. You know, and yes, the, I mean, these people are like waist high. They're tiny little people, but there's something they're very they're feral. You know, they're I find them fascinating to watch because they haven't got the boundaries that society has put on us. So that you're watching them, and you know that these people could could and would you know get rid of you if they felt you were a threat um you know and we kind of we think that we can go and observe them and things but you know they're not interested <laughs> no knives and spears still hurt when they're in the hands of small people as much as they do <laughs> yeah. with tall people yeah and they, well it's their skills i mean this is what blows me away about like you know being able to travel and actually spend time with native peoples is their skills you know their ability to be able to vanish in these environments to be able to track in these environments it's you know it's their back garden or their backyard you know they can see when something's changed they know when the fruiting seasons are they know where the animals are i mean if you get the opportunity to go out and spend time with these peoples and actually be taken out um it is an incredible privilege and it is just the most amazing thing um you know our skills will never ever match theirs so it might be an impossible question but if you could only ever go and travel amongst one people again who would it be <laughs> uh that's that's really really hard <laughs> um i don't know I, like all these different cultures have got all their own stories and uh traditions and and things um and like i i have a real fascination with the folklore and uh like the mythology and things so i think it would be really really hard to pinpoint one <laughs> That's interesting. Can we? What, what do you mean? So let's talk a bit about that if we can. The folklore and the mythology. Yeah. So, well, every culture um, that you, that I visit, uh, even our own, like even our own culture, have has got folklore and mythology, and you know, some of it may come from elements of truth, but so much of it revolves around nature, um, and that's what I find so fascinating. Like a lot of these, uh, you know, the mythology and the folklore and things is all about the seasons. It's all about, you know, as, as humans, we're animals, you know, we have those priorities of survival. We need to meet, you know, fire, food, shelter, water, um, you know, food being one of them and migration, um, uh, patterns, uh, like fruiting patterns. Those are really, really important. Those are what would have kept our ancestors alive. Um, and to have stories around those things that reminded you, you know, at the time of year that yes, it's coming or, you know, midwinter in our culture has like a lot of connotations. So Christmas was traditionally a pagan festival. And paganism is all about the seasons, it's all about nature and working with nature and understanding that, you know, that mid-season was like a celebration because it was a celebration of, you know, darkness into light, you know, the beginning of this sort of rebirth of the world and, you know, the, the days are getting longer, you know, summer's coming, spring's coming, we're going to have like uh, plenty and uh, it's just so fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And that's a whole separate conversation, I think, for a different day. Yes, yeah. So, given how time is as it is, um, I'll ask you one last question, which, and I've said this before in a previous um, conversation, but the first episode I did was with Alistair Humphreys, and I asked him at the end um, what he would say to his younger self, and he laughed at me and said, that's a crap question, I'm not going to answer it. Instead, um, ask me what my... 70 year old self would tell me now so yeah. that is what i will ask you instead because he's right <laughs> um 
I don't know. I mean, I like I would love to have, you know, to be able to have interacted with my younger self. I'd love to be able to do that and actually show them that because I, I suppose I struggled like when I was growing up because I didn't really feel like I fitted in because I wanted, you know, I chased like my mind just needed adventure. It needed to be outside. It needed to be pushing boundaries and limits. And, you know, I struggled like at school. I struggled, you know, to to kind of fit in. And I had had really, really good friends um, but I struggled to fit into what society said I should and like into that box, um, you know, and I, I'd love to be able to go back and actually be able to support her through, you know, through that and say it's going to be OK. Look at you now, like <laughs> look at where you got to. And, you know, and I hope like that my 70 year old self will still be out there doing crazy stuff and still living. You know, and my grandmother lives just around the corner from me. She's 90 and she's still she's like this is no word of a lie <laughs> like I've just been away for a month and um in that month she's learned to play the ukulele and has just joined a band <laughs> and it's just like that's inspiring and you know like at 70 80 90 you know I'm hoping that she will be talking to like you know would take you know I'm 34 so would be taking this 34 year old self and being like it's okay look at where you are now so yeah hopefully it's just a continuation of things yeah you can learn to play the ukulele and join the band <laughs> yeah nice. it's awesome cool <laughs> yeah. thanks very much yeah no worries thanks for coming along Thanks for listening. For more information on Meg, head to the show notes at theadventurepodcast.co.uk. The podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft and produced by Pip Saunders and Tom Carr Griffin. The podcast is produced by Cold House in association with Sidetrack magazine. I mention Sidetrack in every episode and will continue to do so. But this week, all I'll say is that they've just released volume 14. It's available to buy online now. And yesterday, I was lucky enough to interview Martin Hartley, who is a world-class polar photographer and a long-term hero of mine, who also happens to be the director of photography for Sidetracked. So we recorded an hour-long interview with Martin, as well as a 10-minute ending where he talks a bit about Sidetracked, what it is, what it stands for, where it comes from, and what he does as part of it. So you'll have to wait a couple of weeks for that one. In the meantime, head to sidetracked.com and get yourself a copy of Volume 14. And final bit of housekeeping, the whole social media comments and iTunes review thing is actually really, really helpful and genuinely of interest to us. We've had some brilliant emails, some brilliant comments that have genuinely impacted the way that we create this podcast, some of the decisions that we make, and we really appreciate all of the honest comments around quality control. So if you have something to say about the podcast in general, or as ever, if you have a recommendation for a guest, then please do get in touch at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk.